This is the California Politics Podcast for the final week of 2018. I'm John Myers, the Los Angeles Times. Podcast listeners know that we've been on a holiday break and the worlds of Golden State government politics that we often cover have been quiet. But this week, a governor like none other. That's the topic of this podcast. Over the break, I drove up to Calusa County to sit down for one final extended chat with Governor Jerry Brown. Now, calling it an exit interview in retrospect, I think seems a bit off. For, for starters, there's never really a true interview, I don't think, of the man who served as the 34th and the 39th governor of California. I would tell you it's more like a meat grinder and that sometimes you get really great comments, everything rolls out in this smooth, finished product, and other times he gets stuck on something, some kind of misaligned metaphor, an assertion I've made with too few facts to back it up. It's like that meat grinder gets stuck and clogged and you've got to stop and start the conversation all over again, which makes it all the more funny that I had hopes of just turning on the audio recorder when I went up and letting Governor Brown speak and then just giving you that entire conversation. Clearly, I have not learned anything from my conversations with him over these past eight years. So what follows instead is a series of extended excerpts, I would call them, recorded in the living room of his new home on the big ranch that the uh, Shuckman Brown family has had in the foothills outside of the town of Williams for uh, decades, for back a century. The governor has built a 2,700-square-foot, one-bedroom home there off the grid. It's on solar power. Um, I wrote about the ranch and the home late last year for The Times. You can, you can check that out. First, an audio listening note. Unlike the usual podcast, I did not take along the traditional microphones. I had a less obtrusive microphone on the uh, digital recorder that we use for the podcast. The result really is that Jerry Brown's a bit off mic, we would call it, and yours truly is even further away from the microphone. Pro tip, folks, the person you're interviewing is a hell of a lot more important than hearing yourself, so you always put the microphone closer to that person. And second, you're, you're going to wonder, what is all that background noise? Well, it's a bit of a white noise hum, I think, when you listen to it. The mystery solved, folks. It's the blower on the wood-burning fireplace in the room. So blame me, the audio engineer, for not telling the governor to turn off the blower and keep out that heat on a cold December day. But I started this conversation with an observation. You know, Jerry Brown is the only person to ever serve 16 years as California governor. And as I said to him, I think he uses that fact as a powerful calling card. You have said many, many times that there's no substitute for experience. Yes. That was kind of one of the things I've heard you I talk say about. that in recent years. I didn't yeah. say that 40 years ago. Yeah, you said it in recent times. You said there's no substitute for experience. So... I thought maybe you would give me a sense of what experience mattered the most now in retrospect. What was it this time around? All right, but I have to give you the counter to there's no substitute to experience. And that is a saying of a Buddhist Zen master that in a beginner's mind, there are many possibilities. In an expert, experts, very few. So there is a quality to a beginner's mind, fresh, open, uh, bold, but in an experienced mind, uh, there's a, um, uh, a knowledge, a depth, uh, a clarity, a wisdom that is very is profoundly important. So, but uh, there also can be um, a rigidity and uh, a lack of imagination as people do the same thing over and over again for decades. So I just put that in. But now what's the experience? Um, certainly the experience of uh, 
hiring people, sometimes firing people, working with people, uh, making mistakes about people, learning over time. I, I think that that, that insight uh, about people, uh, that's in part intuitive, uh, but it's also in part just the experience of having done it for decades. So I think knowing people, and that shows up in the people that I bring into the governor's office, it also shows up in the relationship with the legislature and the relationship with unions, the relationship with uh, representatives and lobbyists of the various uh, businesses and uh, environmental groups. So I'd say um, the understanding of people, that's one part of experience. The other part is just the, um, the knowledge, the, uh, uh, the experience of people said Vietnam, just to add more troops, and yet it failed. Uh, the more, uh, I think when you, what in government worked, what in government doesn't work, the limitations, certainly my experience, which I, I had that all the time, but it deepened uh, my skepticism of the Obama education program race to the top, my skepticism about the collection of massive data on all students and teachers, something I opposed, uh, because I felt, uh, and this is experience and reflecting on it, that uh, learning occurs in the home, of course, but in the classroom, it's the teacher and the student and, and the class and how that all works once the door is closed. And I find uh, in Washington, the president, the congressman, <clears throat> in Sacramento, the legislators, uh, there, there's, and, there's some, and the lobbyists, they're off, they want to micromanage, they want to uh, embed into the legal structure of California or America very prescriptive commands, telling teachers what to do and what not to do, and constantly uh, measuring and hectoring uh, uh, these individuals who have a very challenging job. So that was one of the bases of my strong relationship uh, with the teachers, uh, with the uh, California Teachers Association, the Federation of Teachers. I think we, we had great, we were in sync on our respect for the role of the teacher and the skepticism uh, of the micromanagement of a lot of the reformers. So that was a area where I, I, I could create a, a good case. So I could give you a lot of other, other areas. The, the same thing would be uh, on the prisons. I went to my first parole hearing in 1960 as a student at the University of California. My father was governor. I attended a, a hearing at um, uh, San Quentin and uh, the parole board happened to be white and the uh, inmate happened to be black. And the way they, I thought they talked down to him. And they all said, why aren't you taking your, your group therapy? And I thought it was white guys uh, telling the uh, African-American guy um, and talking to him in a way I didn't like. <clears throat> and so that sense of, uh, or that what a prison is, how to make, how to transform prisons and the, the atmosphere of prisons and how they have criminogenic, I didn't have that word uh, 40 years ago, but uh, that word criminogenic, that the prisons uh, breed crime uh, by the, the way they, the attitude and the message that goes out to the, to the inmates and trying to turn that around with not only programs, but training of the 
of the correctional officers, uh, and, and that whole world of how do we deal with punishment, uh, how do we deal with rehabilitation, and that interested me. And I'd say I'm probably, uh, is it probably more interested than any other governor. And I continue, even to last night, still working on this stuff. So we're actively engaged, and as you probably saw, we filed a lawsuit uh, to invalidate uh, the Cooper Initiative. And so, the, so that's part of experience that I've been at, well, from 1960 to uh, 2018. That's, what's that? That's 58 years. So that's, and, and I've been thinking about it. Not all the time, but on and off for that period. And I can give you five more topics. Here's the thing about Governor Brown. You know, he would have given me five more topics had I not jumped in. But he then said, oh, well, I guess you just want more general quotes. And I said, no, but I, I do want a more linear path through the conversation. I should tell you, this is a pretty familiar joust with Brown. He is correct. There are some journalists who just want a soundbite from him. But even those of us who want more sometimes fear that he's going to filibuster the time that you're allotted if you don't jump in. So a few minutes later, I asked him to explore another element to this whole idea of being a senior statesman, this view of him over these final two terms. And that's the often repeated statement that he has been the adult in the room in Sacramento in negotiating with the legislature. The other side of experience is age, and I'm 80. Um, I've been in my 70s the whole time I've been governor. When I started the first time, I was 36. Most of the legislators were older than me. Uh, most of the staff was older than me. Staff of the legislature and staff of the government itself. So that didn't give me uh, the credibility that I now have when I'm older than the other people and I'm more experienced. So uh, not only do I have ideas that would lead people to say, well, you're the adult in the room, but I also have the position that, that one earns by being on the front lines for a long period of time, just like a general has more credibility than a corporal. And that's the way I would describe my relationship with the legislature. A good general, though, I would point out, also has some experience on the front lines. And I think this is a key point in the Jerry Brown biography. You know, he didn't have that front lines of governing experience in his first two terms. This time, he had something very real, I think, to draw upon, and that was those years as mayor of Oakland from 1998 to 2006. It certainly seemed to me these past several years to be why he would so often invoke the Catholic Church's principle of subsidiarity. We heard that as reporters time and time again, which simply means that matters should be handled at the uh, lowest, most local level when possible. And I have long suspected that that Oakland time had a profound importance on the way he governed California, which I think he agreed with as the conversation continued. I mean, is that part of the experience of understanding, you know, the whole notion of local government, local issues, well, state issues? Is that part of the experience uh, yes. dynamic? Yes. Uh, I also like to bring in the word abstraction. Um, government deals with laws. Laws by their nature are very general. Uh, law on education or crime uh, or uh, political uh, ethics, those are general uh, mandates that cover 40 million people and the entire state of California. That's different than being in, in Oakland where uh, there could be a problem at McClyman's High School. There can be a murder at 14th and Broadway. There can be a dispute about the height limit of a uh, 
condominium project at 50th and Telegraph. These are very concrete uh, issues and problems, and you actually can see them. Whereas in government, uh, we have, oh, we have a, a funding bill uh, for, for schools. In fact, we don't even talk school, we call education. Very abstract, and it's hard to, gr it's impossible to, to, well, to grasp what that means when you have a particular education bill, say on, on willful defiance. Okay, now, if you're in a school and there is a disruption at a given school and the principal and the teachers talk to you about it, that's very concrete. So I would say that direct experience with disputes about uh, uh, apartment complexes, disputes about schools, the Oakland Military Institute, and whether it's going to suspend some kid or not, that's, that's very concrete. When we come up here, we're dealing with very general um, topics. And I, and I can remember back in 1975 being frustrated that, what does this do? What, what, I, okay, you got to go yes or no or veto or sign. But it very hard, uh, it, it was unsatisfying because I couldn't see it. And Oakland, and, I was gave mayor, you that. and Oakland gave you that. Well, because you could see it. You could talk to teachers. Yeah. You could... Um, the crime was different. We talk about crime. I remember um, the city manager talked about uh, you know, fighting the criminals or driving them out of Oakland. I said, criminals, don't we talk? No, we want to fight crime. No, we're talking about criminals. We're talking about gangs on, in the Fruitvale District or something. So that reality, um, also some of the um, uh, environmental people that would object uh, to housing projects, which I thought was totally ridiculous. But uh, they would do it in the same terms that I heard as governor. But now we have a concrete expression to test the abstraction. You know, this is uh, uh, violates, you know, they, the environmentalists, the height limit. You know, what, okay, 50, 60 feet. I, I remember going down Telegraph Avenue, 50 feet, they didn't want to, this guy wanted to build higher than that. And I thought, to, I would recall, uh, being in Paris, particularly the Saint Germain de Pre. You talked uh, about this the other day. Mm -hmm. And the, yeah. what a beautiful city! What a beautiful six stories. What's wrong with six stories? Right. And yet we had people who were absolutely opposed to more than two stories. Right. So I, I think the experience of of the concrete issues of Oakland uh, illuminated for me a lot of the more general issues that I face as governor. The concrete issues of government that you heard him talk about, I think we're all going to look back and try to ultimately grade how he did on those topics. And I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the next governor, Gavin Newsom, also can draw on local governing experience as the former mayor of San Francisco. This next part of the conversation really moves from topic to topic. Um, I asked about the fate of wildfire laws in California, about PG&E, and then interestingly, whether there was an awkward silence on Marine One when President Trump came to tour the fire lines a few weeks ago. We've all wanted to know what was that experience like. But all of that flowed out of more conversation about this local versus state relationship. I tried to get some sense from Brown of how he decides where that line of control, um, a city versus state government in Sacramento, for example, how he decides where that line should be. 
wherever the line may be, and I think you've made and the, line, the line changes. That, that's what I was about. Well, to get because there. you know the water, and you say, okay, the folks in the valley want to keep digging wells. Right. No, we had to have the um, uh, groundwater management, right. they call Sigma, um, the acronym which I don't like. But the people who know both, this is going to contradict what I just said, the people who knew most, the rural representatives all voted against it. The only people who voted for it were the Democrats in the cities who didn't even understand it. So the, 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 like every principle, there's a counter principle. I had a contracts teacher um, named Fritz Kessler, and he had a German accent. He always said, for every principle, there is a counter principle. So yes, subsidiary, but yes, uh, state mandate when when needed, so and, and there is the that will always be a debate. But, so let me get that to a very specific topic for a moment: wildfires. Yeah. Uh, because one of the debates that is going to go on after you is this notion of where people live in the state. They live in fire-prone zones. We've certainly seen yeah. massive devastation in this part of California. Yeah. Uh, is that a place that someone, I mean, you know, I realize yeah. you're not state going to be mandate. governor, but let's Got to have state, rule, state rules. Yeah. I have some friends of mine, uh, long-standing friends, who want to build in a floodplain. And it's only because the Water Quality Control Board says no that they're blocked. So, yeah, the locals get overwhelmed. And I do think uh, flood and fire are matters of, of uh, real importance and state uh, authority is needed. Is that fair to say that might be a place that we might have learned a lesson out of the devastation up here is that Maybe. we didn't do enough state control over where those folks live? Well, people are still building in Santa Rosa, so uh, I guess they're building in Malibu. People died, and the Mal Malibu must has burned many, many times uh, for long, well, as long as we, we know. So, yeah, I think... Uh, and we have the earthquakes, the seismic standard. So there's always a, a tussle and a back and forth. But the, there is a need uh, for state, uh, state requirements. And um, you, know, you have debates on racial profiling and accountability in education, where I'm for more. Yeah, I think it's, there's not one answer. These have to be looked at. But the seriousness, and certainly burning to death is a big, is damn serious, so therefore state rules on that make sense, but they'll be very contested, because you're going to tell, you're going to say to people, your land can't be developed, and they're not going to like that. Yeah, ultimately people don't want to be told where they can live. And people don't want to be told by the Air Resources Board that your engine is too polluting, and go get a new one. Uh, but that's what they do, and then we give them money, and we help them, and it works out politically. But yes, there's a lot of Mandate government does coerce. That's kind of, that's really what it does, and uh, so it has to be kept within check. Uh, uh, something else that came out of the wildfire universe about government role, um, and that's going to play out now, is the role of um, utilities. So I want to ask you about PG&E for a minute. Yeah. Um, you think PG&E should be broken up? Uh, I there's some there's some question whether they're gas should be separated from the electricity. I'd leave, that, that's a matter I'd leave to the- um, To who? To the PUC. These are smart people. This is the best uh, PUC, I think, uh, certainly in my lifetime. They're very smart people, and I have a lot of confidence that they can figure it out. It's very important that we maintain our private utilities because if they uh, go, go away, it's gonna be a state run and they'll all be taxes. You don't think they should be a public owned utility? 
No, I'm not. Well, I mean, it's, it, if they want to make it like SMUD, in other words, it's possible. I don't know the D Department of Water and Power in L.A. is anything to write home about. So, uh, yeah, I think the private utility makes sense. Uh, but there's going to be a lot of contention, and, and there will be, be real changes, and there need to be changes. Uh, obviously, the infrastructure hasn't gotten the attention that it needs. But it's not going to be pleasant because it costs money. You want to have your power lines. You know, when you sit here, by the way, you won't see any power lines. Not for four miles, so that's a plus. That's why you're off the grid with the solar, I know. And, and nothing's burned. These barns have been here since 100 years. So I guess this gets to the point. So I don't know what, it, yeah. No, 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 but I think what you're getting to is that there is a line between keeping a utility like that in business and, and I mean, because one of the things that people keep saying is we, we're giving them a bailout. You know, we've given them bailouts. Is that, I mean, you know, you went through all these negotiations. Well, what's the it? There's the shareholders. And then there's the system functioning. And if you, want the, if you want to be able to turn your lights on, you have to have a system. And the system costs money. And if you're saying you've got to underground all the wires, that's going to cost billions. Or you're going to have to have some very uh, clever uh, monitoring system so that you can prevent these forest fires. So irrespective of the profit, you have the cost of, of the service. And so... Uh, I don't know. I don't think you, need, you should call that a bailout. That's the investment needed to get the comfort you want from electricity or gas. What was the visit with the president like? Uh, what did you talk about on Marine One flying up to Butte? Well, he did talk about how, uh, yeah, the, the the forest. He, he puts a, an emphasis on the forest that I think way overstates the case. Uh, it's important to manage the forest. Um, and they've gotten too thick, as far as I understand from the sciences I've talked to. Uh, but global warming is real. He doesn't think it's real. We didn't talk about climate change because, quite frankly, it's not uh, open to that. And he, uh, he leads the discussion, to put it mildly, because okay, he's uh, very voluble and expressive, and he's talking a lot. Um, and so he has his views. What did you and talk about, though? Was it an awkward trip? He's listening. No, it wasn't listening. He's, he's, he carries the conversation quite well because he does most of the talking. Uh, but he's a, a good host. He showed me on Air Force One. I went up to the cockpit, went to, back to the plane to talk to the press, uh, talked to the telephone, made a telephone call to my wife from Air Force One. Uh, so, yeah, no, it was, it was, um, it was, and McCarthy was there. The congressman, he get, he was on the plane, uh, so uh, yeah, was it, it, he, he's a very um, uh, he's not one open to the exploration of of alternative ideas to what he he feels. So that to that extent, uh, it's not satisfi satisfactory because you can't have a. You can't say, well, Mr. President, uh, climate change is real, humidity is down, uh, the moisture is, is disappearing through for many months, and that's going to lead to conflagrations. There's no, not even space for that topic to show up. Uh, but I did talk to him. Uh, I did sit right. The interesting point was the fellow with the nuclear football sat right behind me. And uh, I raised that topic, and Trump did express concern about uh, nuclear war, and I thought that 
So that was a positive. What did you tell him? What advice? No, did just you give him? no. I, we, it wasn't an extended oh. conversation, but he just since he expressed you know, that's really bad or something. So that was good. I felt that, uh, that was a, a comforting thought that uh, I think he's going to be trying to avoid nuclear war. Jerry Brown's hesitance to uh, poke a stick, I would call it, in the eye of Donald Trump too often, I think has really been one of the most fascinating political plot lines of the California-Trump dynamic these past two years. I suspect that will change, too, with a new governor. Uh, a little later in the chat, we spent about an hour talking, just to be clear. I asked something pretty specific. I wanted his best political strategist assessment of the split role initiative. That's the 2020 ballot measure you've heard us talk about before that will allow, if passed, significantly higher property taxes on commercial property. Big debate in the legacy of Prop 13. So I wanted the guy who's been in politics longer than anyone. I wanted him to, to weigh in. Can the split role win two years from now? Uh, that's going to do, that's the business community will fight it. And, um, you know, the, there's taxes on business. And then we have the Prop 13, the money uh, on the executives paying high taxes. And we'll be in a recession by then. So it's anybody's guess. Uh, I mean, you think it's the right idea? I think there's some logic to it, I, uh, but I'm not prepared to endorse it, but I'm not prepared to condemn it either. I think How would that, you win that campaign? What do you have to do to win? What I don't know. What are the supporters? Are they, how much is win? it? How much, what are the, how much money are they talking about? What, for the campaign? Down? No, for what it gets. It's only a couple of billion. Uh, no, more than that. I think five or six billion. Well, who are you going to tax? You can tax apartment houses and have it pass through? I mean, there, there, that isn't as easy as you think, because you're going to be in a downturn in the business cycle, and uh, you're talking many kinds of business, and the cost of doing business in California is already high, uh, in the, uh, the, the minimum wage, uh, the um, uh, family leave, uh, the environmental rules, uh, the... the uh, the pago that's suing your employer. So businesses have left California. So that's going to be the big argument. And I think that's something that you have to really think a lot about. I know Michael Cohen, who's our finance director, was dubious of the split role. So I, I would have people, I would want to look at that very carefully. Is that part of the reason why people kept saying Jerry Brown's the guy who can do systemic tax reform and you said maybe not or it's not politically feasible? Or it may not make sense. Even prop, even the high tax on the high income earners, you know, these people, it's 5,000 people that are paying the bulk of the income tax. If they start moving out, it could be a big problem. So there's a limit to all these goods. You can only tax to a certain degree, and you can only tax certain people and businesses to a certain degree. When the neighborhood, the other states and their competitors is different. I mean, Apple's going to Texas where they don't have an income tax. So, yeah, there's a limit. You just can't uh, tax and tax and expect your economy to, to uh, not, not be affected. So there is a limit, and the split role can have a very modest role, or if you want to make it really huge, you're going to run into uh, risks of jobs. I think that's true. I think that answer, and you know, Jerry Brown is pretty reliably liberal on some issues. He's more centrist on others. But I think that answer helps explain why the California Chamber of Commerce, for example, had an awfully good relationship with this governor, even though they tried to defeat him in the 2010 gubernatorial race. A lot of things have changed there. 
Lastly, in the conversation, I asked about what the next governor has in store, a question that came after a bit of discussion about criminal justice, which, by the way, podcast audience, I'm going to leave for a newspaper story we are still writing. Sorry, I can't give you everything. But Brown, who had already predicted a very near-term dip in the California economy, you heard him talking about that a moment ago, said that he thinks Governor Newsom will find several things different and probably harder than they were for him. For his time in the office, the expectations seem pretty high. I also get the sense that he may not get the deference that you got in the Capitol. Do you think that's fair? Do you think he's going to have a set of expectations? He's going to have a a challenge. The legislation is going to be quite a challenge. And it's going to be a challenge... Uh, first of all, because uh, I've been reasonably successful, and there is inherent tension between the executive and the legislative. I saw that with myself, and and um, uh, when I was governor, my father certainly experienced that with uh, with Jess Unruh, certainly with Colbert Olson um, in the legislature. So, and so with Gray Davis and and Schwarzenegger. So, yeah, I think it'll be challenging. And part of it, uh, it's just they, they, they've, been, they've been around longer, and, and then there'll be the stress of the, of the downturn. And so, I, yeah, I think it'll be quite challenging. No doubt all of us really want to know what Jerry Brown will be doing as or if all these things become quite challenging. Is there a role he can play to help or not? I mean, we'll see. One thing Brown did not want to talk about, by the way, is what he will do next. He insisted to me that he's living in the moment. He's not looking at the past or the future. It's in the moment. Um, Whether it's fussing with the blower on that fireplace, and trust me, there was an entire part of the time where he got up and kept lamenting whether the thing was actually effective. Um, Or whether he's preparing for his final actions as governor up until January 7th, he does say he is living in the moment. Next week, we're going to be back with a look at what happened on January 7th as Gavin Newsom takes the oath as governor, proposes his first budget and more. It's going to be a busy, busy few days, as a lot of you know. For now, though, that's this episode of the California Politics Podcast. I'm John Myers, the Los Angeles Times. And I want to thank the loyal band of podcast listeners who have hung around now for 12 years, 12 years of all of this politics chatter since we launched it back in my days of public radio. There are going to be some big changes to the podcast in 2019. And I think key to that is going to be hearing from you on social media and email and uh, helping us make it as topical and timely as we can. But for now, just want you to know how grateful I am that you listen and that you engage with me and my colleagues. It's always a lot of fun to talk to you here on these episodes. Happy New Year, folks, and we'll see you next time. Uh